Hello, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 61, 1 through 3. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Diana. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 7, verses 22 through 27. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to suffer I mean, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 41. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you speak to us. You call us to yourself. You call us to relationship with yourself. And so we ask now that as we open the scriptures that you would open up our hearts and our minds, cause us to encounter Jesus in the preaching of the word. We pray that we would be changed and transformed, Lord, conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. About five or six years ago, when our two oldest daughters were much, much, much younger, uh, we were watching Planet Earth. I, I don't know if it had just come out, or we had just gotten the Blu-ray of it, or whatever. Who uses Blu-ray anymore? And, um, and there was this scene, probably, of a cheetah on the African Serengeti, let's say, pursuing a pack of antelope, let's say. And the narrator's voice was very dramatic, 
The cheetah stalks his prey. The unsuspecting antelope carries about their search for food. And on and on it goes. And the, my daughters are watching this knowing that an attack is imminent. And one of them blurts out, We have to pray that God protects the antelope. <laughs> now this is a parenting crisis moment. Because how do I explain to them that this is not live, this has already happened, and surely an antelope was harmed in the filming of this documentary. <laughs> and, but before I could, you know, muster up a response, the other daughter blurts out, but sometimes prayer doesn't work. Now I have a bigger parenting problem <laughs> on my hands. And children are sometimes more honest than we are about prayer. And the question that maybe is really in, on all of our minds sometimes is how do we actually pray in difficult times? I want to talk to us this morning about petition and protest, how to pray in difficult times. This is, as Pastor Evans said earlier, this is the first Sunday in Lent and this is a season where we think about the suffering and sorrow of Jesus, our Lord. This is the season where we remember his own humiliation and pain. It's also a time when we, very often, for a lot of Christians all around the world, where we fast. And part of our fasting is indeed to confess, to repent, to become aware of sin in our own life. But another part of our fasting is a way of saying, I want to be near to Jesus. I want to join him in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we want our giving up something during Lent to lead to a giving out. And that's why we have the special offering. And that's why we have the Lent practices card that encourages different ways of giving out. But there's another component of it. It's a way of saying, how do we actually walk with Jesus when it's not Christmas and Easter? It's easy to pray on Christmas morning. It's easy to pray on Easter morning. In those moments we say, oh yes, it's so great, isn't it wonderful? And especially maybe during Advent and Christmas, because there's all these even you know, B-grade movies and TV shows or whatever that vaguely and ambiguously encourage us to believe in miracles. So we're all just sort of sentimental. We're like, oh yes, whether it's Santa or the healing thing that I need, I'm just gonna pray because we can just believe. But what happens when all of the tinsel is gone? <laughs> when all of the excitement and sap and sentimentality is over? And what happens when we find ourselves in the barrenness of Lent, wondering how to pray? How do we actually talk to God in the middle of these moments? For some of you, when you came to faith, when you came to know Jesus, maybe someone who is, who is guiding you in the way said, well, all you need to do, prayer is simple. Prayer is just talking with God. Just pray what's in your heart. That is a beautiful beginning to life with God. It's a beautiful way to begin. Jesus himself praised the person who beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's better than sort of the pompous or pretentious prayers. But what they don't often tell you, what people don't often tell us, is that what begins with simplicity and honesty, if all we get is just pray what's in your heart, over time what happens is we discover that actually we're pretty selfish. And actually the language that comes easiest for us, our native tongue, so to speak, is selfishness. 
And so after years and years of just praying what's in our heart, we find ourselves praying consumerism prayers. Lord, give me a better vacation. Lord, give me a nicer this. And we start wondering, is God okay with that or not? And God is patient with us. But then we think maybe our only other option is to pray polished prayers. And so we think either I pray what's just raw and unvarnished and whatever's in my heart, which could be selfish, but it's in my heart. Or we say, well, maybe we're supposed to pray pretty, polished, churchy prayers. Oh, Lord God, thou art high above all the heavens and the earth. And I don't even know what these words mean, but I'm just saying them. And we think that, that maybe to come to God, we need to have our lives all together. Actually, what we need is a language for prayer that does not diminish the depth of our human experience or the breadth, the dynamic range of life itself. We need a language for prayer that can encompass the depths of our souls and the breadth of our experience. And Christians for 2,000 years have found just the right language school in the Psalms. The Psalms are, in a sense, language school for prayer. They teach us how to articulate the depths of our beings before God. In fact, in the fourth century, a church leader named Athanasius said it this way. He said, in the Psalter, which means the book of Psalms, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because we're used to being told that you read the Bible to learn about God. That is true. Jesus is the main character of the Scriptures. But did you know when you read the Psalms, in a way, maybe a secondary product is you, byproduct is you actually learn about yourself. Now, some of us move so quickly in life. Some of us are living at just, just from one thing to the next, and it's late nights, and it's early mornings, and it's carpet. And by some of us, I mean me. <laughs> And we understand how it's, I just got to go from this thing to that. And I got to deal with this situation and this situation. And it's hard to stop. But the Psalms, even if you pray two or three Psalms a day, have a way of arresting you in your tracks. They have a way of confronting you with emotions that you would rather not deal with. In the Psalms, you become honest about your own fears. In the Psalms, you become honest about your own sadness. In the Psalms, you become honest about your own anger. There's a lot of language for anger even in the Psalms. And so Athanasius says, look, the Psalter, in the Psalms, you find all the movements of your own soul. Now, right off the bat, we might be tempted to think, well, this is nice. This is nice sort of optional extra credit for super Christians. I mean, some of us, Glenn, have real jobs. We're not all pastors and working for Christian ministries where you can get paid to pray, you know. First of all, I don't uh, get paid to pray. Uh, secondly, I understand meetings and emails and the pressures of people management. At some level, whatever role we're in, we're all dealing with people. And we're all dealing with the pressures of different situations and dynamics and deadlines and all of that. And Jerome, another church leader in the 5th century, wanted to be clear to his congregation that this is not the responsibility of just a few holy people. Jerome said it this way. He said, farmers are to pray the Psalms while they plow their fields and workmen as they work in their shops. Now, I don't have any sociological survey data of Jerome's congregation to know if they actually did do this, but Pastor Jerome wanted his church to do this. 
He wanted every Christian to know that this is the ordinary Christian life. This is how we learn to answer God. St. Benedict, a few centuries later, adopted a rule that, would, that required the people in his community to pray through all 150 psalms every week. Pretty intense. A few hundred more years pass, and by the time we get to the Protestant Reformation, Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer, said, I don't know about a week, but how about we get through 150 in a month? And so Cranmer developed a way of praying the Psalms roughly five a day or so, a couple in the morning, a couple in the evening, and takes you through it. And so you get through 150 in a month. Listen, I'm less concerned about how quickly you do it, but I want you to develop the practice of praying the Psalms, not only as a way of unlocking your heart, but actually as a way of answering God. Eugene Peterson said, could it be that the book of Psalms are organized into five sub-books? There's five books in the 150 Psalms. The 150 Psalms are sorted into five books, probably, possibly, potentially to correspond to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. The first five books of the Bible are how God speaks his instruction to his people, and the Psalms are in five books as a way of answering God, Peterson said. And when you look closely at the Psalms, you find all kinds of prayers. I really just want to zero in on two kinds today. One of the things you observe in the Psalms is that they're full of petitions. The phrase, give ear, appears 15 times in the Psalms. That may not sound like a lot, but it's, more, it's about twice as much as the, the, the second book, that, or the book that comes in second with the second most mentions. Isaiah mentions it eight times. The phrase pay attention appears eight times in the Psalms. Here, the Hebrew word shema appears 79 times in the Psalms. The word for see, roe, appears 101 times in the Psalms. 25 of those times directed toward God to see us, to see, to look, to show, to appear, to consider, to regard over and over again. When the psalmist is asking for something, he's asking for God's attention. He's saying, God, hear me, see me. Oh, hey, oh, down here, God, hello. Have you forgotten me? Psalm 61, verse 1 through 3. We heard it read this morning, but listen to it again. Hear my cry, oh God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And then there are some petitions that are so strong, they're so intense, that really we could call them protests. And I don't mean chaotic riots. I mean an appeal to God in a strong way. Listen to this in Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now we're not just saying, God, would you please listen to me? Now we're saying, what's up with this, God? Now we're saying, why? Why won't you hear me? Why won't you listen? Why does it seem like you're far away? Now, petition and protest may not be the most popular forms of prayer to us. They might not even seem like they belong in our prayer life. But I want to share with you this morning three reasons why petition and protest should be part of our prayer life. Why petition and protest are part of the normative Christian experience of prayer. Number one, petition and protest are actually forms of praise. 
The book of Psalms, the word for Psalms, Tehillah, means praise. The whole thing is called praise. It's as if someone compiled all of these songs and all of these prayers and said, what's one banner for this? What do we call this collection? And, we, and someone said, well, praise. Yes, this is all praise. But it's curious that when you look closely, two-thirds of the Psalms are actually laments, complaints. How is petition and protest actually a form of praise? Let me give you just two reasons here. For one, a petition and a protest, they are implicit ways of affirming God's sovereignty. Let me say it in a simpler way. By bringing your request and your protest to God, you're saying that he's powerful enough to do something about this. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being on a customer service call or trying to sort out an issue with a retailer or something, and you're, you're not getting anywhere so very politely, of course, because you're all very patient and polite people. But at some point, maybe you, you say, you know, can I speak with your manager? And when you do that, what are you saying? You're appealing to a higher power. You're saying, I'm not getting anywhere here, but I need to talk to someone who has the power to do something about this. The psalmist, their petition and their protest is a form of praise because of who they're talking to. If they're talking to their friends, it's just whining. But if they're talking to God, it's praise. If they're just venting, and there's space for that. Listen, there's space for healthy, trustworthy friends. And by that, I don't mean your Facebook status update. There's a place to kind of unload and unburden yourself. That can be a really healthy thing. But it becomes something different when you bring it to God. It actually becomes praise because now you're saying, God, I know that you are the sovereign one. I know that you are in charge of the world. This is why a very common Jewish prayer, a very common Hebrew prayer, uh, often said at mealtimes would begin like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Now we've got a list of requests for you. But it begins by affirming that he's the Lord, Yahweh. He's our God. And he's the king of the universe. As a way of saying, it's because we believe you're in charge of this thing that we're going to talk to you about some things. So petition and protest are forms of praise because they affirm God's sovereignty. But not just because they affirm God's sovereignty, but also because they appeal to God's goodness. They actually appeal to God's goodness and faithfulness. Listen, sometimes in some, maybe some church settings you've been around, we, we've been kind of fed this line that maybe we don't actually know the difference between good and evil, and maybe we don't need to pray about these things because, I don't know, maybe we think it's bad, but maybe God thinks it's good. And so if you are struggling with an illness, or there's a disease, or there's cancer, or there's death, and we're like, well, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think it's bad, but maybe God thinks it's good, so I don't know if I want to pray about that. Can I just tell you that the psalmists are not shy about what good is and what evil is. They have no muddle in their minds about mistaking or confusing these things. They, they do not accuse God of being the author of evil. It's why the gospel writers over and over again are very keen to show Jesus up against natural disasters even and seeing him as the Lord over it rather than as sometimes the, the media will say, oh, hurricane comes through such and such a place, act of God. 
The gospel writers don't call it an act of God. You know what the act of God is? Is the stilling of the storm. The act of God is the peace within the storm. It's, it's, so, so we get confused about this. Like, I don't know, maybe God did this. Maybe God's causing this. So I don't want to pray. You'll never pray unless you believe that God has revealed his character through his word. We know what goodness looks like, and we know what evil looks like. You don't have to name evil as good. In fact, the psalmist will often say, God, why do the wicked prosper? In other words, we know that idol worship, it, it ain't right. And yet we see what's happening. And why do the righteous suffer? The psalmist understands this, and he's appealing to God's goodness. Listen, it praises God when we protest about evil and injustice in the world because we're acknowledging, God, I know that you are not for this. I know that you are actually against this. This is why early Christians wouldn't even talk about death the way that Plato, the old Greek philosopher, talked about death. Plato talked about death as a bird being free of its cage, the imprisonment of the body, but now I'm free. It drives me crazy to attend Christian funerals and hear people saying that, well, now they're, they're free of these mortal chains. That is not the way the New Testament talks about it. When Paul names death, he names it as an enemy because we are free to say that death is a result of sin in the world and death is an enemy of God's good creation and it's an enemy that one day will be swallowed up by Jesus Christ, the risen one. You don't have to play games with words. You don't have to call bad things good and wonder what God thinks about it. You can say, God is against all that is against his world. God is against that. And that's why to protest against it actually glorifies God because it says, God, you're good, and I know you're not for this. But secondly, petition and protest are actually proof of the relationship. They're actually proof of the relationship. C.S. Lewis, in his thin little book, Reflections on the Psalms, talked about how in the ancient world, particularly in Greek mythology, you would see the gods doing their stuff up here some, in some other realm, and then it would spill over into the affairs of humanity. And so if the gods were at war, maybe there's a thunderstorm. And if the gods were mad, maybe there'd be an earthquake. And you're like, oh. And so human beings are only and always affected by the affairs of the gods. And Lewis says, but when you read the Psalms, the Hebrew mindset is different than the Greek mindset. The Hebrews weren't saying that God, his opinions affect us. They were saying it's a two-way street. Not only are human beings moved by God, but God is moved by human beings. God himself is moved by our prayers. Amen. Next week, we're going to begin a series that will take us all the way to the end of May through the rest of Lent and uh, through Eastertide. And it's a series called Faith in the Wilderness. And it will walk us through episodes in Exodus and Joshua with Moses and with Joshua after him. And this, but the whole story of Exodus begins how? Begins with God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. And what does God say to Moses? He says, I have heard the cries of my people, and I'm sending you. The whole project of redemption is launched because God is a responsive God. 
He's a responsive God. He is moved by us. He cares about us. We don't have a stoic God who is like a stone in the heavens that says, thank you for your request. I will review this into committee and take it under advisement and shall be back with you momentarily. God hears our cry and says, oh, I groan with you. This is not the cold-hearted stoic. This is a God who is truly in relationship. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber wrote a book called I and Thou, and he talked about how for there to be relationship, there has to be personhood. Each must allow themselves to be moved by the other. We are in a relationship with a God who allows himself to be moved by us. How remarkable is that? How remarkable is that? The Southern Baptist Preacher and leader Russell Moore described the story in his book, Adopted for Life, described the story of going to a Russian orphanage to adopt his boys who were now teenagers. And he said when he visited this Russian orphanage for the first time, he heard the most eerie sound he'd ever heard in his whole life. It was the sound of silence in a nursery. A room full of babies, none of them crying. And as he inquired about this, what's the deal? How in the world? What's happened? Why is it so silent in here? And they said, it's because nobody comes to answer their cry. And so here are these babies growing up, internalizing the message, I am alone in the world. Nobody will respond to my cry. My needs don't matter to anyone. My needs might be a burden, in fact. And so these babies do what is the most unnatural thing for babies to do, which is to not cry. Now, I know some of you parents with babies, you're like, but could they just stop for like a few minutes, you know? Like, could we just get the crying to stop for a moment? I get it. And parents, maybe this can encourage you. When your baby cries, it means they believe they're in a safe place. They believe someone's listening. They believe someone will attend unto their cry. And sometimes we have this weird idea that babies should conform to like a mechanical schedule and never do this and just and forgetting that in the dynamics of a relationship, a cry must always be met with care. Always be met with care. In fact, one of the great, one of the great things Maybe this is just our kids. I don't know if your kids do this, but our kids are bolder with us than there are with any other authority figure in their life. So your kids that way too, right? I mean, sometimes it's like, do you talk to your soccer coach like that or like your teacher, your dance teacher? Because that, like that, could you phrase that? And listen, I'm all for like parenting that trains our children to be respectful and all that. But listen, you don't want kids who talk to you like you're a stranger, you don't want kids who talk to you like you're some authority figure. Dear Papa, might I have a second helping, please? You don't want that. You want your kids to say, Dad, I'm starving. Will you make me breakfast already? Like, I don't like hearing a request that way. But on a good day, I remember, oh, it's because they know I'm their dad. And they wouldn't just talk to anyone that way. We ought to be more bold with our parents as we ought to be more bold with our heavenly father. This is what Jesus, I think, is trying to unlock 
when he says, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father? Jesus is trying to say, do you not understand how much your father loves you? You've got to be bold about this stuff. Petition and protest are actually proof of the relationship. The fact that we can be this bold. Some of you have stopped crying. Some of you have stopped praying. And I understand there is a phase of grief that is what sociologists and psychologists refer to as an inarticulate phase, where you don't even know what words to say. That, that, that's real. But I just want to say to you that in time, find the language of prayer, even if it's the language of protest, even if it's the language of how long, O oh Lord. Because what that does is it proves that you know that God cares about you. You are not alone in this world. Amen. You are not a burden to your heavenly Father. Amen. Your cry is always met by his care. Don't go silent. And the, third, the third reason that protest and petition are part of our prayer life is because they are pathways to intimacy. They're actually pathways that lead us into intimacy. Over the years, as I've done premarital, the, the funniest moments are when a, a young couple full of optimism and hormones um, will say to me, Oh, it's just it's so great. We never fight. And I think, oh boy, how many more sessions are we going to need to add for this one? You know, Because everybody who's been in a long-term friendship or a long-term marriage understands fighting is not bad if you learn how to do this well. Actually, it can be a gateway into intimacy. In the conflict, you can say, okay, okay, I need to get better at, at hearing past the anger at the moment. Say, What's actually, what are you actually bothered by? What's the longing or the fear or the hope that is deeply underneath the, all that emotion right here? Rather than saying, don't be frustrated. Say, help me understand where this is coming from. Because we understand that conflict itself can be a pathway into intimacy. Maybe the champion Petitioner and protester in all of Scripture is Job. Like, he takes first place. He gets a whole book to himself, maybe, because of this. Like, nobody is better at petition and protest than Job. And what I love about the book of Job is it's put in a class of books or a category of books called wisdom literature, which is so interesting to me. Maybe some of you thought that the only wisdom literature in the Bible was the book of Proverbs. And so you're like, yeah, I read the Proverbs, you know, Proverb a day, keeps the devil away. <laughs> and then you start living life and you're like, hey, doesn't seem like it's true, actually. Did you know that the ancient people of God understood that faith and the life with God is more nuanced than that? And so they offer us the gift of the Old Testament to us is, is wisdom literature is not just Proverbs, but also Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and the book of Job. <laughs> I had a seminary professor who once said, Proverbs says, do these things and life will work out this way. And Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Job say, we did and it didn't. <laughs> the Bible is not afraid of our messy lives. 
The Bible is not afraid of our inability to put everything in a box and tie a bow on it. The Bible says, come on, bring all of it. The thing we cannot do is stay away from God. That is what the God of the Bible, if there's one thing he doesn't want, is for us to stay away. So the whole point of the book of Job is not the why of the suffering, but the who. It's how Job and God end up in closer relationship than ever before. The end of the book of Job, Job 42, 1 through 6, the message paraphrase makes it particularly poignant. Says it this way, Job's talking, after all of this, his friends were poor comforters. He doesn't know the reasons. So far, God hasn't struck him down yet, so he's like, I think I've been okay, you know. I'm on okay ground here. And then at the end of it, after God appears to him and speaks to him, Job says, I'm convinced. You can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes, and Job's like, I admit, that was me. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions, and you give the answers. And if you recall, the questions God was asking Job were basically, where were you when I set the stars? Like, do, do, you see this. Were you also there during this? No? You, no? Okay. Right. Okay. Just checking. And Job's like, I get it. I was not there. And then he says, I admit, I once lived by rumors of you at a distance. Now I have it all firsthand for my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay and crumbs of isn't it amazing to me that God could have told Job what the reader of the book of Job is told? At the very beginning, the reader is told that the devil comes to God. And he's, is there any, does Job serve you for nothing? Right? Why doesn't God, when he finally speaks, if Job is able to hear him, why doesn't God say, well, Job, here's what happened? It doesn't offer him the divine perspective. He offers the divine person. We are never given the explanation that we want, but we are always given the person of God through the incarnation. No explanations, but yes, the incarnation. God himself. And Job, what he gets is a close with, this is why through it all, what Job gains is intimacy with God. He gains a first-hand faith. No more rumors. No more crumbs. No more pat answers, but intimacy. Friends, I'm not saying to you that if you master the art of psalm praying and learn how to bring your petitions and protests, that these are seven keys for getting your petitions answered. I'm not offering you that. I'm offering you something better than that. I'm offering you a first, the Bible is offering you a firsthand relationship with God. What do we gain from all of this wrestling with God? Contact. Contact. That's what you gain. Intimacy with God. Actually knowing Him. And here's the beautiful thing, friends. In the incarnation, we understand that actually in our petition and in our protest, Jesus is praying with us. 
We often think that we're praying to the Father in Jesus' name. That is certainly true. But there's something more mysterious, more glorious that's going on that actually somehow Jesus is alongside us and praying with us. Think about what happens in the Gospels. You know, we, we, we love the beginning, the stories of Matthew and Luke. God with us on Christmas Eve. Beautiful. Thank God, God is still with us on the road to Golgotha. God is still with us in the desert. God is still with us in Gethsemane. God is still with us on Ash Wednesday and in Lent and on Good Friday. Jesus, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays a petition that doesn't get answered. Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Pause, drops of blood. Oh, maybe this one's not going to be answered. Nevertheless, your will and not mine. The Son of God doesn't try to manipulate the Father by his pure and perfect faith. The Son of God doesn't offer us cheap tricks on how to guarantee your miracle. The Son of God doesn't invite us into some sort of cheap prosperity version of the faith. The Son of God shows us that in our petitions, and especially in those petitions that don't get granted, Jesus is praying with us. And then on the cross, he prays the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes theologians have tried to parse this and to say, wait, was there a separation between the Father and the Son? But you can't split the Trinity that way. We can't do that to the doctrine of the eternal union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't say that there was a separation. So why is Jesus praying these words? Maybe it's not to give us a theological insight into the Trinity. Maybe it's to give us a personal word of comfort. You see, every Jew grew up memorizing Psalm 22 as the prayer that you pray when you're going through suffering. There were other Jews who had been tortured by the Romans. No doubt they had prayed Psalm 22. They had been others throughout the recent history, tortured and oppressed, Jews facing their death, who have prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus on the cross of Calvary prays this prayer, he's saying, I am with you in the long line of solidarity with the suffering and the violated, the victims of violence, the oppressed and the marginalized, the persecuted and the downtrodden, the ones who feel like they are forgotten. Jesus says, I'm praying the prayer you prayed. I'm with you. I'm with you. So that now you and I never, never have to wonder if we're actually alone. No, you're not. You're never alone. In our petition and in our protest, Jesus is praying with us. The good news, the gospel gets even better than this. Because the story of Jesus doesn't end in Lent. It doesn't end on Good Friday and it doesn't end on Holy Saturday in the grave. 
The story of Jesus ends with resurrection. And so will yours. Even if all of your prayer life from now until the day you die are petitions and protests and petitions and protests and why God and how long, Lord? Even if that's all your prayer life is all the way to the grave, I'm here to tell you that if Jesus' story didn't end in the grave, then neither will your story end in the grave. There is one more prayer coming. The song of praise is coming. Easter is how the story ends. Resurrection is the end of the story. It's where we're going. Lent, if you're mathematically inclined, you will have noticed, is 46 days. Ash Wednesday to Easter is 46 days. And if you are mathematically inclined, you're thinking, yeah, what's up with that? I thought it was a 40-day fast. Why is it 46? Because the Sundays are not of Lent. People who are technical about this stuff will never say it's the first Sunday of Lent. They'll say it's the first Sunday in Lent. You know why? Because the Sundays do not belong to the realm of fasting and sorrow and suffering. The Sundays belong to the new creation domain called Easter. The Sundays are designed to be mini Easter's, which practically and maybe a little bit fun means that Sundays are the days that you get to enjoy the thing that you've been giving up. You're like, oh, no kidding. Let's go get that double tall chocolate mocha, whatever, you know. <laughs> Great. But more profoundly than that, the Sundays in Lent remind us that even while we live in Lent, we carry the hope of Easter. We are people who belong to a new order of things. Every day, Paul said, our bodies are perishing, but our inner being is being renewed. Because I belong to a different order of things. I carry Easter while I live in Lent. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?